Hello, and welcome to the podcast of Emmanuel Assemblies of God in Knoxville, Tennessee. We're so glad you've taken the time to listen. If you're ever in our area, we invite you to join us for one of our worship services. For times and locations, please visit at EmmanuelAG.com. So today I'm, I'm going to uh, pick up, uh, we, we, we started a series last week on the seven miracles of Jesus in the book of John. So last week we, we were talking about the water turning into wine, how Jesus turned the water into wine. This week we're going to go to John chapter four and we're going to look at the second miracle. And this is the uh, healing of the nobleman's son. So if you'll open your Bibles with me to John chapter four, starting at verse 43. Uh, I'm going to give you a little context here. John chapter 4 and verse 43, it says, After he had been in Jer- uh, after the two days, he departed for Galilee. Okay, after two days, he departed for Galilee. So where was he? Um, he had gone to the feast of Passover in Jerusalem. And when you read the other three Gospels, you kind of get the idea that because of the way they were arranged, like the book of Matthew, I did a very uh, verse-by-verse study in the book of Matthew, and you see that his whole ministry surrounded around Galilee for the first half of the book, at least. Then he went out to a few places, and then the last half of the book, he made that journey up through Samaria and, and to uh, Jerusalem, where he was crucified. And when you read the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you almost get the idea that Jesus only went to Jerusalem one time in the end. But when you read the book of John, you realize that Jesus traveled back and forth and ministered um, in Jerusalem and in Judea a lot more than the other three kind of point out. And that's what makes John such a different gospel. When you read different stories and different different uh, things that happened, a lot of those things were centered around the temple and in Jerusalem and not in Galilee. But uh, the story today does happen in Galilee. And he had been in Jerusalem for the Passover. And as he was traveling back to Galilee, um, he was uh, he was going through Samaria. And that's where he had that conversation, if you remember, with the woman at the well. And uh, when he told her, you know, what kind of life she had lived and she realized that he was the Christ, so interesting that the woman from Samaria is one of the people that he chose to reveal himself to as the Christ. She said, I know that the Messiah is coming and he'll explain all this to us. And he says, I'm him. And so she left her bucket of water and ran into town, if you remember. And all the townspeople came out to him. And uh, let's see. Yeah, so look, look, look at this with me. And John, we're going to go back just a few verses to John chapter 4 and verse 39. Listen to what the result of, of this was. It says, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Okay, because of the woman's testimony. He, he told me all I ever did. Verse 40, so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. So that's the after two days that we're opening up with, okay? And it says, verse 41, and many more believed because of his word, and they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. See, these Samaritans came, and they heard his word, and they believed him. That's why I wanted to sing that song today, just to take him at his word. They listened to his word. You know, the Bible says in, in Romans 1 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, right? Because it is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel, the proclamation of the message itself is the power of God. The word of God is the power of God. 
And the power of God has within it the ability to believe. Like I said uh, earlier, when, when he spoke a command, go and sin no more or rise and walk, that word had the power to, to make you able to do what it said to do. Isn't that good? And so when we see the commandments of God, they're not a burden to a Christian. Now, under the Old Testament, the law, yeah, they were a drudgery. They were a burden. But to a Christian, they're empowerment. I can live this way by the Spirit. This is how God wants me to live. Praise God. So it's, it's significant here. It's of note that they believe God's word. So look at verse 43 again. 443. After two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So it's so interesting that they put this parenthetical thought here. He says, for Jesus himself has testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. Now the word there, uh, you know, most translations actually say, I'm reading the ESV here. Most translations say a prophet has no honor in his home country or in his own country. The word actually there means one's own fatherland or his native place. It can refer to a town like it did, you know, in the other gospels where he went to Nazareth and they wouldn't come. They rejected him in Nazareth. So it can refer to that. But of all the places mentioned in this narrative of this miracle, Galilee is his home country. So it's interesting that he says, Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown, but when he came to Galilee, they all welcomed him. So what, what's John saying here? Why are they welcoming him? Verse 45 gives us the answer. The Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. See, they'd been there in the feast and they saw everything that was going on. This was, in, according to John, he went to Jerusalem at this trip and uh, he cleansed the temple. It's very likely that he did that more than once because this was early on in his ministry. The, the uh, other gospels record it happening later in the ministry. It's very possible that he did this multiple times. And so he starts with cleansing the temples. The Galileans are there. They're watching all this stuff. And it says he, they saw the signs that he did. Look at them. Let's go back a couple of chapters, if you will. I want to tell you about this trip. John 2, verse 23 through 25. Hold your place in John 4, though, because that's what, that's what we'll be working, working through today. But John 2, 23, it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Uh, some translations will say miracles that he was doing. You know, what was he doing? He was healing the sick. You see, see the book of John in the very end, it says, if we were to write down everything that Jesus did, we couldn't contain it in all the volumes in the world. So Jesus did a lot more than seven miracles. You know that, right? You could read the other gospels. And there were times where, I mean, Matthew chapter eight, it's just miracle after miracle, after miracle, after miracle. And then it ends with, they all came to him and he healed them all. So he did multiple things that are not recorded in John, but John recorded seven miracles specifically because he's wanting to show us certain things about the ministry of Jesus. And so here, it says that many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. He was doing his ministry in Jerusalem, and they were watching. And then verse 24, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to, himself to them because he knew all people, and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he knew himself what was in man. 
Jesus didn't entrust himself to them. They believed in his name, but he didn't entrust himself to them. Isn't that an interesting thought? You can see already there's something not perfect about the way they're believing in him, that he could not entrust himself to them. Do you see that? If you look it up, I didn't know this. I only found, of all the different commentaries I read, sometimes I just really like to absorb the scripture and see, this, this week I was struggling with where, where to take this, and I read every commentary I had on it. One commentary brought this out, and I looked it up in the Greek, and it's true. The word they believed, they believed in his name, is the Greek word pistuo, okay? The phrase that Jesus did not entrust himself to them is the same word, pistuo. Isn't that interesting? See, this, this verse is talking about their believing, but it's bringing into question the quality of their commitment. But the same word that Jesus didn't entrust himself to them. I think that's interesting. We could say, you know, we say we believe in Jesus, but does Jesus believe in us? <laughs> think about that. Or we could say, does the quality of our commitment to Jesus match the quality of commitment he has toward us? Think about that. You know, people say, I would believe in God if, if I knew he was real. Maybe God would believe in you if he knew you were real. Oh, God, show me that you're real. And he's saying, show me that you're real. Today, I want to talk to you about four kinds of believing. Four kinds of believing I see in this parable. There are four different, I don't know, you could maybe call them levels. I, I've, I don't want to go beyond what the scripture says, you know, but I think you could see them almost as four levels of believing. But I'm going to call them four kinds of believing. Because, see, God wants us to believe unto righteousness. Bob talks about believing unto righteousness. He wants us to believe unto life. He wants us to believe unto salvation. He wants us to believe unto healing. But so many people who say they believe, they're not experiencing those things in their lives. So what's wrong with that kind of believing? They say they're believing, but they've not ever entered into these things that believing would produce if they were really believing. So there's this group of Galileans. They'd been with Jesus at the Passover and they, they, uh, they saw the miracles he was doing. They saw the cleansing of the temple. They saw everything and they went back to, to Galilee and they were waiting for him because he's two days over there in, in Samaria. And when he finally comes, they welcomed him. Why? Because they're wanting to see more miracles. They're wanting to see some stuff. Wouldn't you? Come on. But you know what? This is surface level belief. When I was a kid, my dad was pastoring a church. And he would have this evangelist come from time to time. I, he was a traveling evangelist. And his name was Jim Carmen. And uh, he had a ventriloquist. Okay? okay. And he would come and entertain us, you know. And he would do it for the kids, right? But, you know... He, He's really entertaining the adults too. I mean, we had so much fun because we couldn't wait for him to come with his, his little puppet's name was JC. So like Jim Carmen, not Jesus Christ. But anyway, um, Jim. So we're sitting there and he's, you know, this little puppet, you know how those things, their eyes move and they, I mean, they're just, they, they look like they're alive. Well, one of the times, the last one I remember when he came, he actually stayed with us. And so when he stayed with us, don't you know we wanted to see that puppet? <laughs> don't you know we wanted to check that thing out up close, you know? So we asked him. I mean, not just us kids. Like, my, I remember my mom was like, can we see your puppet, you know? 
So he got the thing out, set it on his knee, and he made fun of us and insulted all of us through the puppet like you can do, right? But it was fun. But we wanted to see him up close. You know what I mean? We've seen him up on the stage. We've seen him entertaining the crowds. I want to check this out. And they saw Jesus in Galilee. They saw him doing all his things. All the crowds are following him, but now he's back home. I want to check this out. Come on, do a miracle, Jesus. Do something. Come on, let's see it. It says that many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to him because he knew all people. See, this is a surface level of belief in Jesus. Surface, superficial. And honestly, this is one of the dangers that we have living in a Christianized culture, okay? Because we can say we believe in Jesus, but do we have the kind of belief that produces real change? There's no real repentance. There's no life. There's just, oh yeah, I believe in God. You know what I'm saying? So this is what I'm calling the first kind of believing. The first kind of believing is the believing that God exists, but not to the point that you're actually willing to change your life. Oh, look, it's up there. That's awesome. I didn't even look. I was just going to read it and then peek and see. (laughs) Believing that God exists, but not to the point that I'm willing for it to interrupt my schedule or interrupt my routine. There's this thing. I heard some miracles. I believe them enough. I'm going to go see them and see if I can see something maybe. But, uh, you know, I don't let it, you know, interrupt my day to day. You know, James 2.19 says that you believe God is one. James, James is for you, Carolyn. I, I, I had to find one from James just for you. You believe that God is one and you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So the devil has got one up on a lot of so-called Christians because at least they shudder, you know? At least they tremble at the idea that God is real because a lot of people believe and they say they believe that God is real, but they don't even change their lives. They don't even try to. They don't even consider what, what, what the will of God is or seek his word or what, what might be the requirements of God if he were real or even better yet to seek his heart and know what kind of things he wants, what he has for me. It's level one believing. And Jesus didn't entrust himself to him. It was a good thing, honestly. It's a good thing, I'm not complaining. It's a good thing that they believed in his name. I'd rather live in a Christianized culture than a paganized culture. I really would. It was a good thing that they believed in his name. He did not rebuke them for that. It was a good first step to coming to true faith in Jesus but it was kind of like that group think momentum that you get at a sporting event. You know what I'm saying? Cheering them on. I mean, you'll go crazy at a sporting event, cheering on your team. You'll do, those people in those, in those stadiums, they'll do anything during a sporting event. It's like, let's go. I just want to see these people playing, performing on the field. I want to cheer them on. You know, come on, Jesus, do a miracle here. Let's go. There's the crowd. We saw it. Let's go. But when the event is over, you go back to normal life. You don't let that kind of believing impact your life. And that's not the kind of believing that produces the results. It's a good first step, but it's just what I call the level one, the first kind of believing. You go back to your normal life. You try to figure out how to get along in your own ability. There's no transformation because the reality of what Jesus came to do has never actually penetrated your heart. That's why when, when, I, when I speak I use phrases like, um, you know, we need to, Jesus came to connect us to God. Why do I say that? Or God wants to, to fill us and express himself through us in the same way that he did through Jesus. It's because the, the, the words that we've used for years, like, are you saved? You know, are you, do you believe in Jesus? Are you a Christian? 
they've become so watered down just because language changes. Those words are powerful if you know what they really mean. Are you saved? It's a heavy word, but we've used it so much, we throw it around. Are you saying, no, are you connected to God? Has Jesus Christ connected you to God? Has he filled you? You know, can God express himself through you? Because that's the fruit of those things. Does that make sense? And so I'll use those words until they get overused. And then we'll try to find another new phrase to explain or uh, 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 what's the word? To explain or or, uh, describe an eternal truth right? The truth doesn't change. We're not in introducing new ideas here, saying those things. It's just that some of the old ways we've said it all our lives, we get so used to hearing it, we've lost the impact of the meaning. So God wants new life. What? Born again. Are you born again? Yeah, but do you have new life? Do you have the life of God in you? Are you connected to God? See what I'm saying? It's, it's just a new way of saying the same thing. So level one is the believing that God exists but not to the point that you're actually willing to change your life. So verse 43, go back to John 4, 43. Let's, let's read it again. After two days, he departed for Galilee. He leaves Samaria. He goes to Galilee, 44. For Jesus himself has testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. And having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Verse 46. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. Okay, so we're dealing with two towns here. Cana, where he made the water wine, and Capernaum, where Jesus was actually staying at the time. That's where he lived. So there is this official. Now, this is a nobleman. Uh, I don't know why the ESV says official, but all, most of the other translations say nobleman. Uh, this man was very likely royalty. Um, there's a debate. Among, I told you I, I don't normally quote commentaries when I preach so much, but I read them all, like I said. Some say this was obviously Jewish, a Jewish man. This, this is obviously Gentile. I mean, so they're divided on it. But we do know that the word implies that he was either nobility himself or at least worked for somebody in nobility. Okay, Capernaum was a big bustling town. I mean, there was you know, this is where the centurion lived. There was a large synagogue there. There was a big fishing industry there. It was a seaside town and it was a lot of activity in Capernaum. And so this nobleman lived there. So he's at least, you know, at least employed by a royal family. So I'm sure that this man for his son had the best medical care available at the time. I'm sure they didn't hesitate to get call the doctor and do whatever they needed to do for this man to be to this boy to be well. Yet he still had a need. He still had a need. And I just want to tell you, we owe it to our generation to seek after God and to walk in the power of God so that we can represent him the way Jesus did. Because so many people have needs and the doctors can only do so much. But God can do it. God still is in the healing business and the deliverance business and the setting free business. And we need to re represent him. We need to be able to let him express himself through us the way he did through Jesus. We owe it to our generation to walk in power. You know, it's one of the primary ways the gospel actually spreads. You know, um, again, I, I keep on apologizing that we keep talking about India so much, but we were just there and it was a good trip. Yeah, thank you. But uh, we went to the Assembly of God Church and we ministered there. And then we went to a, a, a Damasa church, which is a tribe that is not Christian. 
Um, and so when they become Christians, they get kicked out. And so there's this little community of Damasa Christians who've been kicked out of their own, their own home. And we asked them, we said, how is your church growing here? Because, you know, India is like 2% Christian, 2%. Yet these churches are growing. So how is your church growing? Because we really wanted to know. We're like, what's your, what's your strategy? We're going to go back to Knoxville, Tennessee, and we're going to grow our church based on your strategy. You know, how are you getting the gospel out? And they're like, when people are sick, we pray for them and God heals them and they become members of the church. Sounds like book of Acts, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, and this Demosta church, I mean, this one lady we talked to, we actually talk, you know, okay, I only speak English. All right. They speak like all these languages and Rin Kim speaks like six of them. So I'm just, I smile a lot. Right. Okay. But Rin Kim actually could talk to a few of them. And she asked about four different people, their testimonies in the Damasa church when we spoke there. And they're like, what happened? And they're like, well, um, you know, I was sick and the doctors couldn't help me. So I did everything that the, you know, the Buddhists told me to do, or first it was the Hindus did everything that the Hindus told me to do. They did the incantations. They put the beads on me, everything. And I, it, it didn't help. So in desperation, I tried, um, um, uh, the Muslim faith and, and, it didn't work. I did everything they said to do. So finally, in desperation, I went to a Christian and they took all those beads off of me and everything. And they prayed for me in Jesus name and I got healed. So what do you want me to do? Here I am. <laughs> I became a Christian and that's how their church is growing. Same way you read in the book of Acts. I believe God will continue to do that even in America. You know, America, the culture is really, you know, we've got a lot of medical care that, that's, that's very imposing and, and, um, you know, we've been kind of trained to disbelieve some of these things, but, uh, God will do those things here the same way he does them there because he's not a respecter of time or place or person. All right. We're living in the book of Acts today. Amen. We sure are. So praise God. So the nobleman has this need and modern medicine could not help him. So let's look at 444. 47, verse 47, when this man, the nobleman heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son. Why? For he was at the point of death. His son was about ready to die. So I looked on Google Maps. It's an amazing time for research and theological research. I looked on Google Maps. I wanted to know how far it was from Capernaum to Galilee. And uh, 22 miles. It's 32-minute drive by car or a seven-hour walk. But where Google Maps fell short is I could not find an option for a donkey or a chariot <laughs> to know how long it could have possibly taken him. But if he walked, it was seven hours, and it was uphill because Capernaum was down on the sea, and this was up in the hills. So it possibly a seven-hour walk uphill to, to come find Jesus. So this is a nobleman, you understand, okay? Royalty, very likely royalty or at least employed by royalty, maybe retired, you know, it's like I said, it's a big city, a lot of people living there. And here he comes to Jesus to ask for help. So Jesus says to him in verse 48, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. At this point, think of this, Jesus is surrounded by this crowd, right? from Galilee. They're all wanting to see a miracle. The people just, you know, they all came back and in the crowd, a single man comes up to him. One man and says, come and heal my son. This is the second level of believing. 
Okay. Number one was, you know, I just, I believe that God exists. I believe that Jesus is doing miracles, but I don't let it affect my life. Number two is I believe that God exists and he is willing to help me. He's willing to help me. This man came and he said to him, come and heal my son. He's at the point of death. And Jesus says, unless you, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And he says, come down and heal my son. He asked Jesus for something specific. Come and heal my son. For some reason, his, the reputation in Jesus was out there. Like I said, he did a lot of ministry in, in, in uh, Capernaum. He believed that if he could come to Jesus, Jesus would heal his son. Do you believe that Jesus heals people? Amen. Do you believe that Jesus will heal you? It's a, different, it's a different level, isn't it? Do you believe that Jesus provides for people's needs? Sure he does. Do you believe that Jesus will provide for your needs? See the different level? Yeah, it's a, it's a better, it's a more commitment there, isn't it? Do you believe that Jesus transforms lives? Yes. Do you believe that Jesus will transform your life? Yeah. Do you believe that Jesus will transform your children's life? Yeah. Think about this. I love the fact that in this story, the kid had nothing to do with it. You know what I mean? See, we need to fight for our kids because our culture tells us once your kids turn 18, see, Rin Kim comes from a different culture. We talk about this stuff all the time about how, you know, kids stay in their father's house for a lot longer than they do here. Our culture says once your kid is 18, you can't tell them anything anymore. Right? Well, our culture also says that kids don't belong to parents. They belong to the state too. So let me just tell you, our culture is wrong. Our government is wrong. It's not true. You are always going to be their parent. You'll always be their father or mother. You have, you have the, not only the right, but the responsibility to pray for them and fight for them. And I love the fact that in this story, it was between Jesus and the father. And then the son got healed. Kid wasn't even part of it, except for he received the healing. Well, son, me and Jesus had a talk and you're going to serve God. <laughs> but I don't want to. Well, it's really not up to you. <laughs> me and Jesus already decided you're going to serve God. So just get ready. <laughs> Amen. We have, we, have, we have a lot more, more to say about our children. Of course, you know, my kids are young. I have yet to prove this. But, but look, at, look, at the, look at the verse. The kid wasn't even there. And Jesus and the father worked it out and he got healed. Praise God. Your family benefits from your relationship with God, no doubt. Level two believing begins to ask the tough questions. If, I, if what I read in the Bible is true, then how should that affect how I live my life? See, level one doesn't care. Level two, how should I spend my time in light of this, right? How should I treat others before God? Look at Micah, is it Micah? Yeah, Micah 6, 8. 6, 8, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. What does that look like in my life? How do I do justice? How do I walk humbly before God? Level two believing starts to think about these things because this level of believing is impacting my life. If God is real and I need to come to him, what's it going to, is it going to cost me something? Do I have to change my life? What does, you know, the Bible calls this repentance. What does repentance look like, right? So 
How does this play out and how I think from day to day? So Jesus says to him in verse 48, I'm going to go back to the text. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And Jesus said this to him. Yeah, Jesus said this to the man. Unless you see signs and wonders, you, you will not believe. But the word there, you, is plural. So he not only said it to the man, he was saying it to the crowd. You get what I'm saying? Uh, a good translation, and if you have a translation other than ESV, it may say this. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. It's plural. Unless you people. So he's speaking to everybody there. And verse 49, Jesus just, or the man simply says, sir, come down before my child dies. He's focused. And then Jesus said to him in verse 50, go your, go, go, <laughs> go. Your son will live. Go, your son will live. He speaks five words to him. Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. This is the third level of believing, taking God at his word. The man took Jesus at his word and went his way. Like I quoted earlier in the opening, you know, the book of John opens up, the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? But the people became so enamored and adoring the flesh and all the things that they could see Jesus was doing, they forgot about the word. But that word had power. Jesus spoke a word, go, your son will live. And the boy lived. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and he went on his way. What faith? I'm going to give you another Wigglesworth quote. I understand God by his word. I cannot understand God by impressions or feelings. I cannot get to know God by sentiments. If I'm going to know God, I'm going to know him by his word. He went on to say, you know, I know I'm going to you know, be with him in heaven, right? How do I know that? Not by an impression or a feeling, but because the word says it, you know, his word can be counted on. This is the foundation for all the things we experience. The man experienced a miracle, you know, the, it's called a miracle. So, you know, the boy, you know, the boy lived. But what, what brought him to this point? He believed God's word. He believed God's word. You know, anybody who's really done anything for God has come to the place where they could take him at his word. So my question is this, why do we oftentimes act like level one believers? always wanting him to prove himself to us again and again. Let me just have a sign. Let me just know you're there. When we should be entering into the place where he's proven, he's, I've seen stuff, you've seen, I don't doubt this. I, I can take him at his word, amen? You know, we're always wanting a sign or a feeling or an anointing or something so that we can believe his word. But I'm here to tell you, his word is enough. His word is enough. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord. Remember what Paul said, 1 Timothy 1.12, for I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. I know whom I have believed I move beyond just believing to these things to knowing this. I've proved him. I'm not out here, I'm not out here wondering what is God's mysterious will for my life. Because I can walk with him. I know him. I've proven it in my life over and over and over. See, this is the faith of those who have gone before us. 
Can we speak with that same level of confidence? God wants to take us to that place. That level three believing. I can believe his word. Amen. And I think the biggest challenge probably to this level of believing, level three, I'm calling it. That's not scriptural. That's me. Level three believing is um, the winds of doctrine. The Bible calls winds of doctrine. Ephesians 4, it, it says that the fivefold ministry was given to the church so that, and it goes on to a list, and then in verse 14 it says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. The uh, N.T. Wright's translation says that we may not be uh, carried to and fro by every gusts of teaching, every gust of teaching. Think about a gust of teaching. The New Living Translation says um, every wind of new teaching. And the Living Bible says, then we will no longer be like children forever changing our minds about what we believe because someone has told us something different or has cleverly lied to us and made it, the lie sound like a truth. You know, if there's ever a time in history where we have the opportunity to be tossed to and fro by every wind of teaching, it's now because everybody's hung their shingle out there and everybody's got to used to be a tape series. Now it's a YouTube channel. <laughs> you know what I mean? Everybody's out there with all these different opinions and ideas. And I mean, some of them get violent toward one another and, and uh, you know, call one another heretics and all this stuff. And, and uh, it's fun to read the comments sometimes. But I, I, don't, I don't look at YouTube channels when I don't have comments because that's the best part. If you, if you shut down the comment section, I'm not even going to watch your content. But if, if you'll go something controversial, I'll scroll to that content first, you know. <laughs> But, um, but, you know, what an opportunity to be tossed around by so-and-so says this and believe this, you know. But the truth is we don't have to be deceived by somebody else because you and I will make up our own doctrines. We will. I mean, I've been there. Come on. I've had some failures. I've had some successes and I've had some failures. What happens when you fail? You start to analyze it. Lord, what went wrong? Right? And then you come up with a reason. And when that reason becomes a doctrine, and now it's what I call doctrine of failures. Well, I prayed and I, that didn't happen like I thought it would. I was standing on the promise and the person didn't get healed or whatever it was. Well, there must be a reason. And then you start going through and you start making up a reason. And then once you make up a reason and accept it, that becomes a doctrine. You know, maybe there was something hidden in their life that I didn't know. Or maybe there was something in their family tree that I needed to deal with, you know, something they needed to renounce. Or maybe it was God's, uh, um, you know, mysterious will, or it wasn't time. There was a timing for it, you know, or what's another one? Uh, Maybe God's wanting to teach them. We come up with these things, right? But when you look at Jesus, who is our example, you don't see him dealing with those things. What, when was the time for healing? When they came, Right. Did Jesus ever deal? I mean, look, there are probably things in your family tree you need to renounce and get rid of. But did Jesus ever deal with a generational curse when he went to heal somebody? Did anybody ever come to him who had so much sin that Jesus looked at him and says, I'm sorry, I can't heal you because you've got sin in your life. No, he said, go and sin no more. Don't, don't, don't misunderstand. He wasn't soft on sin, but none of those things stopped him from doing what he said he would do. None of those things stop the power of God. But what happens is if we step out and we get resistance, then we start looking for reasons why, and those reasons become the doctrine of failure. And I'm telling you, we need to stay in the simplicity of what Jesus has done. You know what? I don't know why. 
I did everything I knew to do. God changed me, helped me grow up. I want to be like Jesus. I'm not going to make up a doctrine and make it something that I have to go through now every time I believe you from here on, <laughs> right? Winds of doctrine. Let's t- I take you at your word. I didn't live up to that. I know the problem is not you. It's with me. Change me. Help me. Grow me into this. I'm going to walk like Jesus Christ. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. Simple. So simple. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. It's the third level of believing. So verse 51 As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them, what hour? You know, I love this about real miracles. You know, you can actually, what time was that? (laughs) You know, real healings, they'll show up on the x-ray. You know, they'll have to adjust the medicine because you don't need it anymore. You know, real healings, God God can do that. Amen. (laughs) So he says, oh, uh, he told them what time his son was recovering. So they asked him the hour when he began to get better. And he said yesterday about the seventh hour, the fever broke. And the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This is number four. He believed in Jesus. See, the man first believed his word, but now he believes in Jesus. And I would think at this point, Jesus probably believed in him. (laughs) Number four is actually believing in Jesus himself. Believing in the person of Jesus, believing in the person of God, his nature, his character, who he is. I, if, if I know him and have proved him, I know I can trust him. See, this kind of believing, there's a rest. It's not worried about crossing all the T's and dotting all the I's and getting all the legalism just right. I'm trusting in a person. Do you get what I'm saying? See, I'm not just pumped up with the emotion of a good service. Right. I mean, when we have good services like we did last week, you know, like I said, Rin Kim and Joseph, you guys had these testimonies that it impacted your life. That's right. That's how it's supposed to be. But it's quite possible to go to a service like that or be here yourself and it not impact you. But you still get pumped up with the emotion of it. What takes that level to just being there and being excited about what you're seeing and feeling to actually having it become real, you know, becoming flesh, you know, the word becoming flesh, becoming real in your life. Right. So I'm not just pumped up an emotion. I mean, it's good to, to, to enjoy the presence of God and the presence of worship with one another, but it, don't limit it to that. It's not just searching the word so that I can, you know, the old phrase people used to say, I know my rights and privileges. You know, I'm a Christian. I have rights and privileges. It's not just about searching for your rights and privileges. You know, it's not bad. You need to search the word. But this kind of believing is even deeper than that. It's not just reading the word like a legal document. It's good to read the word like a legal document. Some of the revivalists who've gone before us, that's how they treated the word, with that seriousness, you know? Unfortunately, in our time today, words don't mean as much because people don't keep their word. But when you live in a time where where people kept their word and you kept your word, you would understand that when God said it, he meant it. But how many times have we been lied to, you know, even growing up? That's why, you know, we we, we try to be careful with their kids. We don't want to... You know, Daddy, when we get home, can we do whatever? And, well, if we have time, we'll do it, you know? Not, oh, sure, and then then disappoint them again. You've got to keep your word. Don't let your kids grow up in a, in a time where they're just constantly disappointed, right? Be people who keep your word so that they can learn something about what God is like. But it's not just about searching 
to see what, you know, God owes me in this legal document. It's not, you know, like I said, it's not a bad way to approach it, but there's more. See, if I come to know and believe in Jesus, I come to rest in this loving, compassionate person that he is. Of course he'll help me. I know that from his word, but his word has led me to the person of Jesus. Level four is actually believing in Jesus himself because all that he does flows out of who he is. I can trust his heart. I can trust his will. I can trust his intention for me. 